Good morning. You guys might be saying, wow, that was a really short scripture reading. Uh, Aren't we continuing in Judges? Yeah, we'll be continuing in Judges today, uh, chapter 6, verses 11 to 24. Um, But the reason that I I introduced it this way was because I wanted to, uh, first of all, show you guys... um, the, the, the guy that we're going to meet today, his name is Gideon. He's actually in, in what you would call the Faithful Hall of Fame, which is what we find in Hebrews, uh, particularly that passage. Uh, and, and so we're going to be getting to that. But also I wanted to be able to introduce Gideon in a way that, uh, that I find to be kind of funny. Uh, but it's actually right from the text. Uh, but one of the, one of the major themes that we've seen throughout the book of Judges from the, the beginning to, to now uh, is God raising up and using whomever he pleases for the sake of accomplishing his purposes. Extremely unlikely people. But given that this is one of the the major themes of the book, it only makes sense that one of the more prominent minor themes of this book is overcoming fear. Fear of people, maybe. Fear of failure, fear of inadequacy, maybe fear of uselessness. I mean, it's not uncommon for us to feel like the tasks that God calls us to are are too great for us to accomplish. And when we feel like that, of of course we're going to feel fear. The question is, are we fearing the right thing? Because that's what makes all the difference. In and of itself, fear is actually a, a good thing. Uh, but it can become bad when we fear the wrong things. Uh, for example, how many of you are afraid of heights? Okay. The rest of you would be perfectly comfortable, you know, building skyscrapers. And, you know. <laughs> it's actually the second most common fear. Uh, heights is actually the second most common fear. Uh, your odds of, of falling to death. Uh, or even being injured by falling or by jumping from too high a platform or from being pushed from a high place, your odds of that happening are 1 in 65,092. But the odds of you having your identity stolen is 1 in 200, approximately. Now, what's the greater fear? Well, we, fear, we fear heights. We tend to fear heights more. The average person, however, is exponentially more likely to, to, fear, uh, to fear heights, even though they're more likely to, way more likely to have their identity stolen. Um, how many of you guys have ever been afraid of being struck by a bolt of lightning? Ever in your life? You've never been afraid? You go in the lake and everything, in the pool and everything? Okay. Yeah, people have a, a slight fear, at least a caution, of being struck by lightning. How many of you guys are afraid of being hit by a meteorite? <laughs> okay. The, the odds of, of, of being struck by lightning are 1 in 2.3 million. The odds of being struck by a meteorite are about 1 in 700,000. Man, go, go figure. How many of us would ever uh, hurt here uh, of having a fear of falling meteorites? But how about you? Seriously, how about you? What do you fear? What are you afraid of? Oh, Crystal puts her hand up. <laughs> I won't call on you. I won't put you on the spot. What things, more specifically, what things that God has called you to do you fear? Or do you feel at least a great amount of uh, apprehension toward Because here's the thing, if God calls us to do something, there's no need to fear being called to it. Rather, the fear should be trying to do something that God has called you to without God. Without God. In in 2011, the movie uh, We Bought a Zoo, um, 
popular movie. A lot of people saw it. It was a true story of a, of a man and his family and how they purchased this 30-acre zoo, which was completely run down. And the movie tells the story about how they remodeled and restored the zoo. And at one point, the main character, who is, you know, of course, played by Matt Damon, uh, he says this. He says, quote, Sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. Literally, 20 seconds of embarrassing bravery, and I promise you, something great will come of it, end quote. Now, that's a, that's a great and inspiring line. But what, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, this isn't just a, a great line from a well-written screenplay by professionals. The truth is that trusting in God with insane courage for just 20 or 30 seconds can grow your faith enough to change the plot line of your entire life. That's about how long it took for Peter to get out of the boat. That's about how long it took for David to charge at Goliath. That's about how long it took for Abraham, Abram at the time, to decide to leave his home, just trusting God wherever God would lead him. Now today we're going to look at another judge that God is going to raise up. This time it's a judge named Gideon. And once again we're going to see that God chooses a person who is... To say the very least about Gideon, he is so unlikely. In our previous lesson, we saw that the Midianites had taken over the land. They were eating all the crops. They were forcing the, hill, uh, the Israelites to run for the hills for shelter. We saw that the reason for this, it was God's discipline. The reason for all this was their continual failure to be faithful to God. God had promised to provide for them when they came into the land. But the people had insisted on trying to provide for themselves instead of just trusting in what God had promised. And so after seven years of this incredible oppression by the Midianites, the people of Israel once again called out to God, Help! Save us! We're hitting the easy button! You know, Make life easy for us again! Help! But what we saw is that unlike previous cycles, this time God didn't immediately... Respond, at least not the same way he had before. Instead of sending a warrior, instead of raising up a warrior to go to war for them and rescue them, he sends a prophet. Instead of delivering the people, he sends a prophet to deliver a message, a reminder of God's faithfulness, and also a reminder of the unfaithfulness of the people. Before God saved them, he needed them to understand what they needed to be saved from. See, they thought that they were just undergoing physical oppression, but they were actually undergoing spiritual oppression. They thought they needed to be rescued from the Midianites, but really what they needed to be rescued from was their own idolatry, their incessant desire to worship and turn their hearts to something or someone other than God. Independence and national sovereignty had become two of their greatest desires when God alone... God alone deserved to be their greatest desire. And so as a result of this incessant idolatry, they were disciplined. They were beaten down to the point that they were desperate and despondent, running for for shelter. How many of you have enough life experience to know that the enemy of God still tries to beat you down to a point where you are desperate and despondent even today? He does. He can't take you away from God. Nothing can take you out of his hand. But the enemy sure seeks to render you as useless as possible. So the story of Gideon 
is a well-known one. Everybody's heard of the Gideons, right? The, the guys who put the Bibles in the, in the hotel rooms. But Gideon's name is found in the book of Hebrews among the faithful hall of fame. We read this out of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 to 34, where the author, uh, who I think to be Paul, but whoever it is, they write this, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. I love that. Made strong out of weakness. Because that's what God does with his people. He makes us strong out of weakness. But few people would fit that description more than Gideon, as we're going to see today. Maybe nobody would would fit that description better than Gideon. But we're going to start a few verses actually into our text in Judges, and then we'll come back to the opening scene. I want us to understand who Gideon is. And Gideon himself actually tells us a whole bunch about himself in just one verse. Judges chapter 6, verse 15. We read, Behold, My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Wow. Okay. This guy doesn't have a whole lot of confidence. He's the smallest son of a family that belongs to the weakest clan. And we'll actually, what we'll see as we go along here is that he's the youngest, man, uh, youngest son of a man named Joash, who is an idolater. He worships idols, and he's of the clan of Abiezer the tribe of Manasseh. Uh, they're a weak clan. They're, they're an obscure clan uh, from a small town uh, called Afra. Uh, and, and this town was so obscure, in fact, archaeologists to this day, they've unearthed all these little towns and villages and everything. They have no idea where this place is. There's no consensus at all about where it actually was located. Uh, in the song that Deborah wrote back in chapter 5, uh, we had a detailed list of, of which tribes had come alongside Deborah and Barak to, to help fight against the enemy. And uh, guess which tribe wasn't mentioned anywhere? Manasseh. They're nowhere to be found. In fact, the last reference to them was back in chapter 1. They've just been kind of minding their own business, kind of being off on their own, and this is where he comes from. This is where Gideon comes from. He comes from a godless tribe. They haven't participated in all in God's calling. So how unlikely is Gideon to be raised up and to be used by God? On the surface, he would appear to be one of the most unlikely candidates you could come up with for God's service. But that's not all. He's also a coward. Let's go back to verse 11 and see how he's introduced. Judges chapter 6, verse 11. We read, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abrezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now, Gideon is an Israelite, and the Israelites are being oppressed. And so, as an Israelite, he too, Gideon too, had to run for cover as the Midianites engulf the land. And Gideon is so fearful. 
He's so filled with fear that he's threshing wheat in a wine press. And on the surface, that might not look like a big deal. It is. See, a threshing floor, uh, it was a, a huge area of dirt or stone uh, that was out in the open where the wind would carry away the, cha- the shaft from the wheat uh, as it was beaten, and it, w- it would be separated. And, and the reason it could be separated was because you're out in the open, and there's a desert breeze coming through, and there goes the shaft, and you're left with the wheat. But that's about the opposite of what a wine press looked like. A wine press was a very small, very confined area, only big enough for one or two people to walk around in. And unlike the threshing floors where you'd, you'd separate the wheat from the shaft, wine presses are typically in, in a hole in the ground. They're usually in a pit, a small contained area. So the last place you would want to be threshing wheat is in a wine press because there's just really not enough room to do it in there. So why is he threshing wheat in a wine press? Because he's scared. Because he's afraid. He knows that the Midianites, at the very least, they'd come and take it away from him. But the risk is, even there, that they might come in and beat him for it. They might kill him for it. But this is exactly where God finds him. This is exactly where God comes to him and appears to him. And I have to admit that given what we know about Gideon so far, that he's anything but this, this brave warrior, uh, this you know, built, buff, brave warrior, I love the way that the angel of the Lord greets Gideon in the next verse. We read this in verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, appeared to Gideon, and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. You think he's being a little bit sarcastic? You think he's being a little bit witty there? I mean, whoever said that God doesn't have a sense of humor? This is, this is the angel of the Lord. Uh, this, is a, this is a hilarious way to introduce uh, Gideon. Uh, and the angel of the Lord is Jesus. Right. And if you ever want to know uh, how we know that the angel of the Lord is Jesus, remember this verse, Judges chapter 6, verse 12. Actually, the, this whole passage, we're going to see it over and over again because the angel of the Lord is actually going to tell us exactly who he is here. He is the Lord. Uh, the fact that he will affirm repeatedly. Look at verse 14. We read, and the Lord turned to him, to Gideon. Look at verse 16. And the Lord said to him, Is this talking about the angel of the Lord, or is this talking about the Lord? The answer is yes. It's talking about both, because the angel of the Lord is the Lord. And you can tell that just by the context. And he greets Gideon by just kind of mocking him. I mean, it's playful, but but he is mocking him. Oh, mighty man of valor. I mean, we're, we're talking about the same guy who's afraid. Too afraid to, to be out in the open as he threshes wheat. He's neither mighty, nor is, he a, nor is he a man, apparently, nor is he a man of valor. But I have the feeling that God is mocking Gideon in anticipation of Gideon's response to being told that the Lord is with him. See, Gideon's response isn't all that different from the things I've heard from people who, like Gideon, and and I guess like all of Israel, have gone through or are currently in what we would call the refiner's fire. He's had a rough, rough seven years. And on the surface, it might have looked like God has been completely absent for that time. But the truth is that God has been present with them all along. He hasn't abandoned them. He hasn't forsaken them. And so Gideon responds. He's going to respond in a way that reveals that he hasn't understood God's plan. He hasn't understood the way that God works on our hearts 
in difficult circumstances. You see, the tests and the trials of life are the operating table that God uses to humble us and to change our hearts. It's discipline out of love, fatherly love. And Gideon doesn't realize that the discipline of God is a blessing rather than a curse. So look at what he says back to to Jesus, or, or the angel of the Lord. Verse 13, And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know who he's talking to yet. Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Man, Gideon's honest, isn't he? I love his forthrightness. He's just, he's just brutally honest about his doubts, about the way that he's feeling. He skips all the formalities. I mean, I guess aside from the polite way of, of addressing Jesus, sir, which just reveals that he completely misunderstood what Jesus was saying to begin with or he didn't accept it. And he throws out the most difficult question in the entire universe. If God is with us, then why fill in the blank? Well, let's, let's just stop there and notice the doubt, the disbelief that this reveals. Not only that, but he's actually mocking God here by insinuating that if God was with them, if he was really there with them, they'd be experiencing the providential blessings of God in spite of their idolatry, in spite of their evil, in spite of their wickedness, in spite of their rebellion against God. God would be blessing them anyway if he was with them, right? That's what Gideon's thinking. And aren't we tempted to kind of feel the same way? God, where are you? Life's hard. We're tempted to ask the same question. If God is with me, then why fill in the blank? If God is with me, then why am I not more prosperous? If God is with me, then why am I sick? If God is with me, then why am I not more satisfied with my life? If God is with me, then why isn't my marriage better? And at least half the time, these are questions that either can't be answered by anyone but God... Are there questions that we probably really don't want to know the answers to? In Gideon's limited perception, his limited understanding, God clearly hasn't been with his people. During these seven years of tribulation, indeed, it has appeared to the people on the surface as if God were absent. People have been dying. People have been starving. People have been leaving the land. But as the readers, we know the truth. We know that the truth is that God put them into the hands of the Midianites because he hadn't left them. He hadn't abandoned them. He hadn't given up on them. He put them into impossibly difficult, trying, desperate circumstances for one reason. To show them the powerlessness of their idolatry. And to bring them to the point where they they didn't hate their circumstances. They hated the sin that led them to the consequences that they were living in. They were disciplined because God was with them and because God loved them. He loved them too much to sit by while they worshipped something and gave their hearts to something other than himself. He hadn't abandoned them. They had abandoned him time and time again. 
And here's the question for Gideon and and for us. Are we looking at our circumstances through the lens of our theology? Let me ask that again. Think about how this, get get a visual of it. Are we looking at our circumstances through the lens of our theology? Like this is theology, this is circumstances, or is it the other way around? Are we looking at our theology through the lens of our circumstances? You see, if our theology, if our under, that is, that's our understanding of God, if our understanding of God, if our theology is seen through the lens of our circumstances, our view of God is going to be anything but steady because our circumstances are always changing. They're always changing. They're constantly changing. And this is one way to develop a very, very flawed understanding of God, a very flawed theology, because if that's how we're looking at God, we've got it all backwards. And yet so many people do it that way. That's, that's how people look at God so often. And we're tempted to do the same thing. This last week, Jimmy Fallon shared a tweet on his show uh, from a girl who had once went on a, a family vacation only to get home and have the pictures developed and realize that her dad had taken three dozen pictures of his eyeball because he had the camera backwards. Man, that's a bad dad story. I hope I never do that. I probably will, though. But, but that's, that's, that's an important, uh, that's, that's a great illustration of how people do this. They get it all backwards. Don't get this one wrong. Don't look at your theology through your circumstances. Your understanding of God will be totally backward if your understanding of God is based on your circumstances. Instead of, uh, you know, instead of doing it that way, our understanding of our circumstances has to be based on our understanding of God. That is, that he's always good. He's always good. He's always holy. He's always just. He's always more merciful to us than we could ever deserve. And he disciplines his children, not because he despises them, but because he loves them. And he knows what's in the best interests of his children. He wants to break them away from their sin. So instead of asking how God could be with us in the midst of our trials or just discomfort, we have to learn to flip that around and ask how God can be using our circumstances, our our temporary trials, our temporary discomfort for our ultimate good. Instead of praying for God to remove a problem that we might have, maybe we should be asking how we can be made into the type of people who can deal with whatever the problem might be by relying on God as our comfort and as our strength. So the Lord's response here, as we're going to see, it indicates that that's what uh, Gideon should have been asking. God, how can you make me into the type of person who can better deal with this and give you glory in the midst of my trials? So we continue, verses 14 and 15. And the Lord turned to him and said, there it is, that's the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord, turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Gideon said to the angel of the Lord, to Jesus, please, Lord, ah, not sir, please, Lord. How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. Gideon's just a skeptic, isn't he? He apparently has an excuse for absolutely everything. He, I mean, he argued when Jesus told him that the Lord was with him. And now he's arguing when Jesus tells him that he's the one who's going to be sent to save God's people from the oppression 
of the Midianites. He's just arguing about everything. I'm not sure what he expected Jesus to say here. You know, what's he going to say? Oh, you know what? You're right. You know, I, I hadn't even thought about that. Maybe one of your brothers is available. Let me, let me go find a, a stronger clan, a stronger tribe. No. No excuses. The calling stands. When Moses was called, what, what did he say? Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? From Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. And he makes excuses. Oh, I, I, I can't talk right. You know, he had a stuttering problem. When Jeremiah was called, what did he say? He said, look, God, I, I can't talk, for I am a child. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 6. Excuses, excuses. Notice what Gideon has in common with Moses and Jeremiah here. Their focus is on themselves. Each of them basically tells God that their best excuse for not responding to God's calling in their life, going forth as God had called them, was themselves. Like Moses and Jeremiah, Gideon is making the mistake of misunderstanding the power of God in their lives. How can I save Israel? He he knows who he is. Jesus knows who he is too, by the way. How can I save Israel? He doesn't understand the power of God. He doesn't understand the seriousness of God's calling on his life. But but he, like uh, like Moses and uh, and Jeremiah, they're, they're right about one thing. On their own, they are entirely, completely insufficient to do anything that they've been called to do by God. But when God calls his people to something, he gives them the strength to get through it as well. Verse 16. And the Lord said to him, in response to this argument, I'm not good enough to serve you, God. The Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. See, when Moses made his excuse, what did God say back to him? He said, surely I will be with you. When Jeremiah made his excuse, what did God say to him? Don't be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. What does God say to us? When we're afraid to respond to his calling, what does he say to us? Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 tells us. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. See, on his own, Gideon would never, ever accomplish the task that he's been called to. But if the Lord is with him, he can accomplish what the Lord has called him to. As God's people, as as Christians, we need to have the same understanding when it comes to our service as well. Like Gideon, you know, we might try to come up with excuses, a list of excuses, but here's the thing. God already knows what your excuses are. (laughs) Before he called you, before he gifted you, he knew what your excuses would be. He knew what you would think your weaknesses are. He knows our hesitation. He knows our apprehension. And yet he calls us and gifts us for service anyway. Our excuses don't nullify our calling. That's an important point here. Our excuses don't nullify our calling. 
Gideon still needed to be convinced. Gideon's idea, his, his response is basically to say, well, you know, maybe we can talk about this over a meal. Let's continue. Verses 17 to 19. And he said to him, and Gideon said to the angel of the Lord, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. So Gideon asks for a sign. Now Jesus, when, when he was asked for a sign, he said an evil and adulterous generation will not receive a sign. But that's because their hearts weren't really looking for a sign. What we're going to see here before we're done is that Gideon really did want to believe. Gideon leaves to prepare a, a, a present, uh, an offering. It's an offering. And the purpose of this offering is really revealed in how Gideon prefaces the offering by asking the angel of the Lord for a sign that he really is God and that he really has the authority and the power to put this calling on Gideon's life. And not just to put this calling on Gideon's life, but to fulfill it, to follow through on what he's promised. But I want us to see how much trust Gideon has here. How much he, he's trusting in God. How much he's trusting in Jesus as the angel of the Lord. He wants to believe. He desperately wants to believe. In fact, he's so desperate that he serves Jesus a goat. Remember that Gideon, like all of Israel, doesn't have a lot of food. In fact, if you look at verses 1 through 10 of Judges chapter 6, you'll see that a lot of the livestock was gone. It was wiped out by the Midianites. So they have a food shortage. And instead of eating the goat himself, or instead of giving it to his family to eat, he gives the best that he has to God. The goat was probably something that they'd been saving for a day where they were really hungry and didn't have anything else to eat. There wasn't enough wheat to be threshed to feed the family. There wasn't enough whatever to eat. And the goat was going to be the meal. But it's the best that Gideon has to offer, this goat. And he offers it to God. Now we're starting to get a glimpse and, and understand why Gideon is in the Hall of Fame for the faithful in the book of Hebrews. Verses 20 and 21. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. You know, this, I don't know about you guys, but this scene reminds me of a scene from Judges chapter 18 where Elijah uh, is going up against the people, the, land, the idolaters of the land who are worshiping Baal, and he drenches uh, the wood that's on the altar, and uh, he's proving that God is more powerful than Baal by setting these drenched logs ablaze, along with the rocks. The rocks are even on fire, the dust is even on fire. And that's what basically happens here. Same thing. Pour the broth over. The broth would extinguish any fire. But now Gideon knows 
that this really was God. He was standing in the presence of God. More importantly, now Gideon's starting to understand that if God is with him, then nothing that he's been called to is impossible. Now Gideon knows that if God is with him, it doesn't matter how big, how powerful, or how oppressive the enemy might be. But now that Gideon knows that he was really in the presence of God, he apparently remembers something that was passed along to him, something uh, that Moses was told when Moses wanted to see the face of God. And God said to him, Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And apparently, remembering that verse, the memory of that verse is a little bit unsettling for Gideon. So we read in verses 22 and 23, Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So what we have here is actually a glimpse of the Trinity. Because we can't perceive the Holy Spirit, whose spirit. We can't perceive the Father, whose spirit. But Jesus took on flesh. And so he doesn't have this in-depth knowledge of the doctrine of the Trinity, but he knows that anybody who sees God isn't supposed to live. And he knows that he's seen God. But he's immediately comforted with the assurance that somehow God has appeased his own wrath. He consumes the sacrifice instead of consuming the sinner. And somehow God has extended grace to Gideon so that Gideon can not only continue living, but he can continue living at peace with God. Gideon didn't find peace with God because on his own he was just a righteous man. After all, a righteous person being argumentative with God doesn't exactly seem to work. He didn't find peace with God because he had great courage to face the enemy. He'd been hiding in a wine press threshing wheat. He didn't have peace with God because he was strong in any way. To the contrary, he reveals how weak he was. He didn't have peace with God because he said a, a little prayer asking Jesus into his heart. He had peace with God the same way that you and I have peace with God. By trusting in Jesus. And trusting in Jesus enough to act on that trust. That's what biblical faith is. He no longer thinks that God has abandoned him. He no longer thinks that God has abandoned the people of Israel. And he's so confident in God's presence in his life and what God has promised he's going to do through his life that he builds an altar to commemorate what will be accomplished. Verse 24. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abriezrites. The question we might be asking after all this is, why Gideon? Why, did, why would God call Gideon? I, I think that's a pretty good question. Why didn't God raise up a mighty warrior who was already established? Why didn't he you know, raise up somebody who was fearless, just filled with courage? In fact, when we really understand who God is, we might be inclined to wonder the same thing about ourselves, asking, why would God call me? I know I've wondered that. And that's a good thing for us to wonder. 
because it reveals how inadequate we, we realize we are on our own. And the more inadequate we realize that we are, the more we depend on the power and the calling of God to get us through what He's called us to do. And so by building this, this altar, Gideon is revealing that he's starting to understand that if God calls us to something, He'll empower us to accomplish everything that He intends. By naming this altar, the Lord is peace, Gideon is revealing that he understands that blood is about to be shed. There's going to be a war. Blood will be shed. But that the shedding of blood is the price of peace. And as such, as we see this, this part of the story of Gideon points us straight to the cross. Where God demonstrated both peace and war. He waged war against our sin, pouring out His wrath against our sin on His own Son, Jesus Christ, who was tempted in every way, every way that we are, and yet He knew no sin. But the shed blood of His own Son was the very thing which paid the price of sin and peace. An established peace between God and those who would trust in Jesus' work on Calvary for their salvation. On Calvary, Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God in order that we as sinners who have simply trusted in him and his promises wouldn't be consumed by the holy wrath of God. We're reminded that without bloodshed, there is no peace with God. As we read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In the margin of your Bible, write this. If you've got your Bible open to Judges chapter 6 here, write Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, we read this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What hostility? The hostility between man and God. The Lord Jesus is peace. He's our peace. The only chance we have at peace with God is by trusting in Jesus, who alone is able to draw us near to God, even though we deserve to be cast away. God showed unmerited grace and mercy to Gideon, and through Gideon to Israel. See, Gideon doesn't start out in this story as a man of great faith at all. He's not even a man of faith at the beginning of this story. But he leaves it as one. God had demanded in verses 1 to 10 that the Israelites repent. But he didn't wait for them to do that. He didn't wait for them to repent to act to save them. He called up and he raised up someone, Gideon, to serve him though that person was entirely insufficient on his own. But God's presence in Gideon's fulfillment of this calling renders Gideon entirely sufficient. God is the difference between Gideon being insufficient and sufficient. God is the difference between us being insufficient 
and sufficient to carry out the calling he has on our lives. Everyone who has trusted in Jesus Christ has not only been justified, that means that they're declared innocent in the eyes of God, but they've also been called and gifted for serving God in some way. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. He says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Does that say that some people are gifted? A few people? Two out of ten? One out of five? Each. Each has received a gift that we are to use. Now you might feel inadequate to serve God. Okay, I I do too. And and that's a good thing. We, We should. We should feel inadequate to serve God. We are. It's just honesty. But here's the thing. Instead of allowing the awareness of our inadequacy to prevent us from serving, we have to use that awareness to keep us humble and to keep us constantly depending on God as we carry out our individual and collective callings. Gideon has been changed in this story in 13 quick verses. He's been changed from a person who's overwhelmed with fear and despair to someone who's confident in the Lord. He's been changed from someone who didn't have any peace. I mean, you can't, if you're filled with fear, you don't have peace. So he's been changed from someone who didn't have peace to someone who knows that the Lord is his peace. This passage is an invitation for us to look to the cross, to look to Jesus, to find the peace that passes all human understanding. And I'm sure that as this passage concludes and Gideon builds this this altar, he knows that he's in for some tough times. He knows he's in for some battles and trials. And here's some news for us. You and I are in for some battles and trials too. But Gideon's life is a testimony to the fact that peace is not the absence of troubles. Peace is not the absence of trials in life. Peace is simply the presence of God with us and the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. Peace is knowing that difficult times, difficult trials are going to come and go, but through it all, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, and that if God is for us, there is nothing and there is nobody that can stand against us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have loved us enough to discipline us, enough to do what's necessary to teach us to hate our sin. And Lord, I just pray that we would continue in that growth, that you would sanctify us in your truth, in your word, Lord that we might become more and more like your son, Jesus. We thank you that you sent him to bear your wrath against sin in order that we could be with you forever. So I pray, God, that you would continue to cleanse us from the idols that are in contention for our hearts, that we would turn our hearts more fully to you, and that as we do, Lord, You would convict us of ways to to serve you. Show us what our giftings are, Lord. 
that we might serve you and glorify you in all that we do. God, we belong to you. We belong entirely to you. So I pray, Lord, that you would show us the dark areas of our hearts that we've tried to keep to ourselves and that you'd just take it all, that it would be yours, Lord. We love you and we want to live for you and for your glory. Thank you for your calling. Thank you for your power in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you are always enough. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.